0: Chapter thirty one of the Milky Way. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Milky Way by F. Tennyson Jesse. Chapter thirty one mostly on food and money. We were bound for some ruins that crested one of the mountain crags far up behind the town, the ruins of a templar's fortress where the knights used to wage war upon the pirates who came up from the seaboard. Peter slung my painting things over his shoulder and we set off up the winding mountain road, leaving our little ringed city below, passing the gay modern painted villas set back among semi-tropical foliage. Then higher up, past occasional little typical Provencal farmhouses, washed a faded ochre with a dusty brown fluted roof and narrow piercings for windows sometimes with a naked vine sprawling like a net over the poles that made a kind of airy loggia in front, the pattern of it exactly repeated in shadow over the hard-stamped earth. Beneath the loggia there was always a yellow-eyed, black-and-white dog that barked itself sideways as we passed. Still higher we went, till mile upon mile of mountain ranges lay below us, sloping away to the line of blue, soft as a bird's wing, which told of the distant Mediterranean. Leaving the road we climbed up the slippery turf, clutching at bare young thorn and almond trees, till we reached the Templars. The ruined walls were mostly only a couple of feet in height, so that they made a kind of ground plan of what the fortress must have been only here and there as on a jutting crag several feet below us the shell of a turret stood up against the sky the old stonework of it a light golden buff in the sunshine having unpacked my painting things peter ensconced himself in one of the little rooms where the grass made a close-fitting carpet his writing pad on his knee and for a couple of hours we worked in silence There is nothing like sweat. By the end of the first half-hour the excitement of work was thrilling me to the exclusion of that terrible convent atmosphere, and by the time the sun had moved so far that it was no longer possible to pursue my effect, I felt enough at peace to pour out the whole affair to Peter. The oppression of it's been growing on me, of course, I ended. Today at Dejeuner it somehow came to a head, but each night's been pretty bad. The dining-room's badly lit, and that green stove is chillsome, and under everyone's plate lies a pool of shadow. And we're all, en masse, so footling, and today it all seemed awful, when I looked round at us, and I thought if any of us died tomorrow, we might just as well not have lived. If any one of these hide-bound, prim, good, rather catty souls would only produce an infant that she didn't ought to have had, I should say all the rest of us ought to go down on our knees to her. At least she'd have had courage. Oh, 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 the greyness of it! Have an apple, advised Peter burrowing in his pocket don't talk to me of food those cupboards were the last straw the finishing touch all that secret food it seemed positively obscene well it does smell rather good if you'll have it with me i enjoyed the juicy scrunch with which my teeth sank into my half of the apple It's no good, I said. I never shall be able to refuse food. That's the penalty you pay for ever not having had enough of it. I know, replied Peter, it alters your whole point of view. If you've ever been starving... I never have, but for a long stretch together I've not had enough to eat. The mental effect is the same it's such a tremendous indictment of civilization such an upsetting and readjusting the standards one never no matter how wealthy one may become can look at food in the same way again it has become sacred some day i'm going to write a paper called on common food as a sacrament i've learned a lot of out of the way things about it One is that its filling capacity comes before nourishment. If you're really hungry, you'll stuff on biscuits sooner than eat concentrated meat tablets. Yes, and the funny thing is that, no matter if you know your tomorrow's dinner is absolutely assured to you, you still can't do away with the insistent little feeling. I must eat all I can, in case I don't get any more and so one lives in a state of overeating. Whenever I get the chance I eat till I get that bulgy, stiff feeling. One never trusts food, so to speak, when once one has learnt not to. Trust is just what we want over money, too, declared Peter, sitting upright in excitement and sending his apple core hurtling over the abyss at our feet. The way people look at money is so immoral. Very few things are immoral. Just as very few things are moral. Because most things are beautiful, and then such a question doesn't enter in. But you can treat money in a most immoral way, I'm sure of it. I listened in respectful silence because I had known for some time now that Peter had inherited a fixed income with which he declined to have anything to do when he had first told me i thought it must be because the money came from pate de foie gras or sweated industries but i found it was that he considered the whole idea of a settled unearned income immoral it's the strongest line of demarcation in the world he now said that between the people who earn their whole income however large and those who have a certain income, no matter how small, to fall back on. It's a far stronger line than that between upper and lower classes, or between rich and poor, or even educated and uneducated, because it means the difference of the whole point of view. The one class cultivates the spirit of the Sermon on the Mount, the second is agreeably conscious that it has no need to. But, I objected, people who have nothing but their own exertions to look forward to don't think about it like that at all. They insure and save up and invest, and the thought of the future is a nightmare to them. Oh, that's just the pity of it. They are the heirs of all the ages if they only knew. Once you can realise it and not worry any more, you are the only perfectly free creature. A man with money can't be free, that stands to reason. And I don't see how one can justify making investments. One can't, except that as other people are doing it, one must do it too. If only everyone worked hard just the same, but no one invested, but gave the money round as they went on, no one would ever starve or need workhouses. I suppose it's one of those things that can't be done because it would need everybody. And yet it would be an absolutely practical solution if they only would. You could live on the fat of the land and yet save your soul alive, replied Peter. I wonder if most people wouldn't think it rather absurd to say salvation lies in having no assured income, I mused. Absurd? Of course it is absurd. All counsels of perfection are absurd. The Sermon on the Mount's absurd. That's why it's divine. Be ye perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's not only absurd but impossible, and he knew it when he said it. In its impossibility, in its divine absurdity, It's the utterance of a god to men who should be gods. It doesn't matter a bit that they can't, as long as they want to be. But they never will be, you know, I objected. No one except a few isolated religious here and there will ever act literally upon the Sermon on the Mount. And even religious don't, because they build convents and monasteries Perhaps no one ever will. Perhaps it's even certain that the whole world never will. But that's no reason for denying the perfection of it. And of course economically and actually it would revolutionise the world. There's no denying that. Oh, what I'll write some day! For it's wonderful what a good ink necessity is to put it on the lowest grounds. But you see, I want to make the other people who only earn from day to day realize there's nothing to worry about. Of course no one would worry for themselves. It's only for their wives and children they worry. And they needn't. When we're all pulling together, no one will be allowed to starve. And if you're a Christian at all, you are bound to admit not only the beauty, but the inevitable rightness of it. A fresh breeze sighed past my ear, and I stretched my arms wide, wide, to breathe it in. And as my muscles relaxed again, I felt myself fit into the curves of the earth, and felt it bear me up. It was a good feeling, and good too was the sight of the slim young oak saplings growing among the ruins the coppery last year's leaves still on their twigs, seeming in the sunlight to burn against the blue of the sky. All these things were gifts to us, and worth the whole length of the glaring riviera at the horizon. "'There's so much!' I exclaimed, elliptically. And one is so free and at large in it. Don't you feel much freer without your money, Peter?' don't I? It's like having wings. You remember when I first met you, Peter, that evening on the chuff? Rather, you gave me a pasty. Food again, you see. Well the afternoon before, when I watched the chuff coming in, I had only one heartfelt wish in the world, and that was for a hundred a year, settled and immutable. Of my own, and now I have grown to be glad I haven't. It does make one trust less having money because there's less need to trust. We lay for a while longer till the valleys filled with dusk and the mountain peaks stood up into the fiery glamour that holds the southern world for a few enchanted minutes before the cold steel blue of night. And when the glow that filled the air and refracted from leaf and stone and the blown hair about our eyes fell suddenly into that chill blueness, we shouldered our traps and set off down the mountain, swinging home along the winding road that glimmered palely at us through the deepening dusk. The sweet breath of violets and stalks mingling with the faint smell of dust as we went, Peter filled my pockets with pines he had collected for my fire, and I went into my convent with the whole golden afternoon in my mind. There had been a treat prepared for me in my absence, and when I learned what it was I fell on La Chermer's nicely starched gimp in my joy. It appeared that my supposed indisposition had been confided to the nuns by my mothers, and they had all consulted as to what would give me most pleasure. As with one voice they had all exclaimed, THE BATH! This matter of a bath is no simple thing at a convent, and I had wrestled with more difficulties than the other boarders, because the majority seemed to regard a bath as a perilous undertaking before which one should make one's will and bid farewell to one's relations. I had nearly caught my young death by leaping through the garden every morning, clad in a yellow silk kimono all over dragons, which I consider was a liberal education for the gardener, to take a cold plunge in the outdoor salle de bain. For the evenings my nice Englishwoman had charitably lent me her rubber bath, a limp, boneless thing that was quite apt to collapse suddenly and allow one's hard-earned hot water to escape in three different directions at once. Yet what a boon it was, if only to see the maid wrestling with it of a morning! You fold it up like a cocked hat, I would inform her, peering over the bedclothes, and let the water escape at one corner. But the unfortunate Lisette was always worsted, the bath doubling up and opening out and dimpling in, wherever her hands were not, and the water flowing profusely over the floor, while Lisette never failed to keep up a little litany of Mon Dieu! Quelle misère! Quelle misère! Oh, mon Dieu! Mon Dieu! Quelle misère! Then, at the new year, the construction of the outdoor Salle de bain was brought to a triumphant conclusion, amid the awed admiration of nuns and boarders. It only remained to find someone willing to risk her life in it, like Saint Lawrence and his gridiron. The thing was apparently heated from below in a manner that threatened to boil the intrepid bather alive. Eventually, La Chère Mère. In tones befitting the leader of a forlorn hope announced that she herself would try it, which she did with much aplomb, and the bathing season was thus formally declared open but Alas, it cost two francs fifty a time to dally with this bath, and hence it was not for me now I found it all heated and ready; I was to have it as a treat absolutely for nothing. I rushed into that salle de bain, sponge in hand, to find the little lay-sister arranging a large sheet-like garment ready for my occupation of it in the bath, a garment that wraps you round like a wet shroud and prevents you using any soap, whilst fulfilling its office of hiding from the Almighty the indecent spectacle he has created. She stood with it in her hands, gazing at me for a moment. Then her shiny cheeks rounded themselves in a smile. "'You will, perhaps, not use this,' she queried. "'The English, I believe, do not care about it.' "'You have guessed it in one,' I informed her. But as I lay, water-clad only, in the imposing copper bath, I felt I loved the whole world the nuns, of course, but even more or less, though less rather than more, the lady who wanted the sky to be rickets blue. Such is the effect of unexpected luxury after a day of high thinking. End of chapter 31